you are listening to the Wedding Spain podcast. I'm your host, Paul Burge. A very warm welcome to you, wherever you're listening from around the world. If you're new around here, what is Wedding Spain? Well, I guess it's pretty obvious from the title. Uh, it's a little regular foray foray into Spanish life, Spanish people, Spanish culture, Spanish places, insights, observations. It's like a kind of tapas of a bit of everything, all to do with life right here in España, which incidentally is where I'm talking to you from, right from the centre of a very chilly and grey Madrid. But anyway, here we are. And this week, I've got a great episode for you, a really interesting story, uh, kind of the perfect podcast episode, I think. Insights, culture, history, really useful practical advice, looking at maybe a slightly lesser known aspect of Spain. This week we're talking about the Jewish history of Spain, the Sephardic ancestry. Sephardic, if you weren't sure, is the Hebrew word relating to Jewish people in Spain. So that's what we're talking about in this episode, Jewish history or Sephardic history, to use the Hebrew word. We'll talk a bit more about that later. And we're going to be talking about a law that Spain passed back in 2015 that has laid a pathway for people of Sephardic descent to claim Spanish citizenship. And one of those people who found out she had Sephardic descent and has gone through that process of claiming Spanish citizenship through her Jewish ancestry is joining me right here on this episode. So stay tuned because I'm going to be chatting to Nicole Martinez Cruz and she relocated from San Diego in the US to Zaragoza in the Spanish region of Aragon after a family member who incidentally was also an amateur genealogist discovered Inquisition records dating back to the 1500s proving that Nicole's Spanish ancestors were Jews. She's going to tell us in a lot more detail all about that coming up. But this actually culminated in Nicole obtaining Spanish citizenship via Sephardic ancestry. And nowadays, Nicole helps other people looking to gain Spanish citizenship through their Sephardic roots through her boutique immigration firm called Welcome Home Sephardi. So a little bit later in the episode, Nicole's going to be sharing her personal story and offering practical advice for anyone interested in embarking on the same ancestral journey, if you like. We're also going to be looking, though, at Jewish history in Spain and how she finds her new life in Zaragoza. And a little bit later in the interview, Nicole will be going through some practical tips and explaining a little bit about the process, the paperwork and how she helps people go through that process. Stay tuned until the end of the episode after the interview with Nicole because I'm going to be running through a few historical locations across Spain, uh, a few of which that I have visited myself, but a few historical locations that should be on your radar to visit if indeed you're interested in exploring the history of Sephardic Spain. So just before the interview, a Patreon plug Yep. Uh, just to say a big, big thank you to all Wedding Spain patrons. I really do appreciate your support. If you enjoy this podcast, maybe you're new to it and you would like to show a little bit of support to keep me doing what I'm doing, you can sign up to become a wonderful patron at patreon.com 
forward slash when in Spain. The other thing, though, I would like you to do if you do enjoy the podcast is leave a review, a rating and give it a like wherever you listen. And if you use Instagram, uh, don't forget to go and give when in Spain a follow on Instagram. Uh, Loads of photos from across Spain on there. And that is when in Spain one is the handle. Just before we get into the interview with Nicole, I wanted to run through a bit of the history behind uh, Jewish Spain. Jewish history in Spain actually goes back as far as the Romans, so the second century. By the Middle Ages, Spain was actually a centre of the Jewish world in Europe. Under Muslim rule, Jewish communities flourished. Jews were highly successful in the fields of agriculture, diplomacy, the arts, philosophy commerce, sciences, medicine, geography, lots and lots. And actually, during the Roman Empire, the Jews were treated the same way as any other religious communities. However, after King Recaredo converted to Christianity in 586, Spanish Jews endured persecutions and forced conversions uh, for more than a century. And when the Moors arrived in 711, both the Jews and the Moors happily coexisted side by side for a very long time. Then in 1146, the Almohads of Morocco invaded Spain and they actually prohibited the practice of Judaism. Some Jews did convert, other practiced their religion in a clandestine way, while the rest fled to neighboring countries. And then as the power of the church grew and grew, the anti-Jewish measures were issued. The freedom of Jews became more and more limited and um, they were eventually excluded from public service. As the Christians then reconquered Spain in the Reconquista. Jews were increasingly subjected to religious intolerance. They were forced to live in ghettos, the Jewish neighborhoods, which could be called today, I guess, Juderias. And then it was in 1492, in fact, the same year that Christopher Columbus set sail after conquering Granada. In March 1492, Isabella of Castile and Fernando of Aragon signed the Edict of Expulsion, which was known also as the Alhambra Decree, with the aim of eliminating Jewish influence in Spain. And this Edict of Expulsion gave Jews, frankly, a very stark choice. Convert, depart or die. And let's not forget that at that time, Spain's Jewish community was actually one of the largest in the world. Now, historians still debate uh, about the number of Jews expelled. Some estimate 40,000, other estimates as high as 100,000 or more. Those who fled sought exile in places that would have them, uh, namely Italy, North Africa, the Netherlands and eventually the Ottoman Empire. Many continued to speak Ladino, which is a variant of 15th century Spanish basically. Tens of thousands stayed but converted and remained obviously vulnerable to the perils of the Inquisition. How many Jews were killed exactly it's still not clear but a widely accepted estimate is at least 2,000 during the first two decades of the Inquisition. So then moving on for the next 400 years or so there was not really any Jewish life in Spain at all. At the end of the 19th century a new interest in Judaism and Sephardic culture uh, gained more and more prominence and a small number of Jews started to trickle back uh, into Spain from Germany from Greece and 
other parts of Europe. And then with the help of a few Spanish politicians and intellectuals, they opened the first synagogue in Madrid in 1916 and were able to worship freely until 1938 when, of course, as we all know, Franco's fascist regime prohibited all religions except Roman Catholicism. In fact, it's quite interesting to note that in his Christmas message of 1939, Franco made a fairly thinly veiled reference to the Jews as a race that was a disturbance and a danger. Nothing that we, by the grace of God and clear vision of the Catholic kings, have for centuries been free of this heavy burden. So anyway, Spain, however, did not deport Jews. And in fact, thousands and thousands of Jews fleeing from the Nazis crossed safely through Spain uh, on the way to other countries. So by the end of the 1950s, Franco's regime had become more tolerant. And in 1967, uh, the first law guaranteeing freedom of religion was actually passed. And the main synagogue in Madrid was opened the following year in 1968. So let's fast forward up to 2015. A new law was passed in Spain in 2015 in a kind of powerful gesture of, I guess, atonement for all of these atrocities that had happened in the past and particularly the uh, Inquisition. Um, In 2015, the Spanish Parliament sought to make amends and enacted a new law inviting the Shephardic Jews who could trace their roots to Spain, inviting them to return. And today it's estimated that there are between 15 and 40,000 Jews living in Spain, mostly in Madrid and Barcelona, of course in other cities as well. Although it's interesting uh, that Spain today actually has one of the smallest Jewish populations in Europe. So there's a little bit of historical background for you. Let's get into the interview now with Nicole as she shares with us her personal story of discovery of her Jewish ancestry and how she came to get Spanish citizenship and be living right here in Spain. pleasure to have you joining me on the When in Spain podcast. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. This is something we kind of had planned for quite a long time for about, I don't know, nearly a year. And yeah. life gets in the way and COVID and other things as well. Just tell us about your story, though, because I'm quite intrigued because you were actually raised as a Catholic and your father had German roots. And on your mother's side, she was Mexican-American. Tell us how that all came together. How did you discover that you had this Schwartic heritage? There's two pathways to it. There was my my kind of emotional and my own internal development around spirituality. Like you said, I was raised Catholic, but my dad, my father, um, who raised me was very open-minded, even though I was required to go to Catholic, to Catholic Church every Sunday and I did catechism classes and everything, he, he allowed me to be intellectually and spiritually curious. So on my own, um, through high school and when I started college, I started taking theology classes and world religion classes. And through those, I was drawn to Judaism. And it really just emotionally clicked with me. There was some familiarity there that I, you know, that just made sense. And Mm -hmm. this was through my late teens and in my early 20s. And 
it resonated with me, whereas, you know, other religions hadn't. And I even had, a, like, one of my first tattoos is the Shema, which is in Hebrew, with, and I, the Star of David, and it's it's on my wrist. And, and I did all of this exploration and the tattoos and, and everything and the emotional connection before I knew I had any Jewish ancestry. So um, I didn't find out about that until my early 30s where I have um, an aunt on my father's side of the family who's a passionate amateur um, genealogist. And I have a quite large family. My father is the second oldest of nine. And so I've got 30-something cousins, (laughs) and (laughs) right? So um, my aunt was working her way through the family. She had already done my father's family genealogy, but she was working through everybody doing the other side of their family, Uh right? Uh So then when she gets to me, she does my mother's genealogy. And we knew we had some... Uh, general background information, like I knew my grandfather was um, born in Jalisco and he was the first generation to move from Mexico into the United States. And very typical in many Mexican families, it was, we're not Mexican, we're Spanish. And that was, you know, the mantra, we are Spanish, we are Spanish, we are Spanish. But we had also known that we'd been in Mexico for a long time. And my family had come from my mother, mother, my mother's mother's side had come from Mexico into New Mexico and then up into Colorado where, uh-huh. where where all of my family over there is from. So my aunt does the genealogy on that side of the family and when she was finished she's like, "Hey, did you know you have Jewish ancestry?" and I was like, mm, "No." She's like, "Yeah, you're like there's like a lot of it. There's a significant amount of Jewish ancestry on your mother's mother's side." And I said, "No, I had no idea." And that side of my family, um they were Catholic in name only. There, there was no going to church. There was a very minimal religious iconography around the house and, you know, mm-hmm. weren't praying before meals or any of that type of stuff. There, there wasn't an emphasis on any type of religion, really, through my mother's side of the family. And so I just kind of tucked that information of having that Jewish ancestry in the back of my head. And I thought it was a really interesting coincidence that I had already been emotional, found an emotional connection with um, the Judaism and the culture and the religion and everything. And then a few years later, that same aunt tells me that um, Spain and Portugal have passed laws allowing people of Sephardic ancestry to reclaim their citizenship. When did they pass that law? Do you remember? They started talking about it 2013-ish, but it took a couple uh-huh. of years for the laws to get passed, but it, it, it enacted in 2015 for Spain. Yeah. Um, and Portugal, I believe, was a little bit earlier. And so I became really interested in the process because I already had an emotional connection to Spain from my family, from my mother's side of the family. And um, by this time, I had already studied abroad in Madrid through university in 2008. So I had spent time in Spain. I had traveled and vacationed here um, and I really wanted to live here. So um, so then I started exploring how does this law work? How do I qualify? What what hoops do I have to jump through? And for a couple of years, it felt really insurmountable. I tried reading the law and I couldn't make heads or tails of it myself. And I just kept kind of researching and chipping away at it to figure it out. And, um, you know, I would use uh, online forums and, and, and I eventually connected with um, some people that were you know, a bit smarter than me <laughs> and kind of, you know, and it could, you know, knew what questions to ask. My, 
My professional background, um, I was an escrow officer in California. So I would, um, you know, I would facilitate uh, real estate transactions. So I was used to contracts and timelines and and pedantic requirements and that type of stuff, you know. <laughs> so this is kind of right up my alley. And even I found it a little bit challenging. Um, and once I kind of figured out the process, I started trying to help people and, you know, or people would found out that I knew the process. So they would ask me questions and it kind of just took off from there. Born out of that, you've obviously become kind of an expert in the immigration process for people all around the world, I guess, that have from Sephardic descent. And you set up your own business, in fact, which we'll come on to a little bit later. You set up your own business helping other people embark on the same process called Welcome Home Sephardi. So basically then, when you were doing your research, I imagine you had to consult a lot of kind of documents that were here in Spain. A lot of the documents for my family in particular were uh, mostly in uh, New Mexico and Mexico. I am terrible when it comes to genealogy. I'm bad with names. I get everything confused. <laughs> so luckily there are people out there that specialize in this <laughs> because I, I just don't have the brain for it. I'm not wired for that type of, of sure. activity. Um, and my, luckily my aunt is too because she's the one who who did the, the preliminary research and she had... Um, she had uh, referenced documents and, and, you know, did the family tree for us and everything. And, and I guess I should also clarify that, that my family's ancestry, they were Sephardic, but because of the Inquisition, they were forced to convert. So, and, right. and this was many generations ago. So through, through the forced conversion and through time, our family had lost a cultural connection to Judaism and, and the Sephardic traditions. A, a few things lingered, and they all mostly centered around food preparation um, and things like that. But, but the knowledge of where that stuff came from was gone. It was just, this is how you, this is how you prepare this food. Interesting how food has that powerful kind of root that stays through the generations. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, for example, one example is after I relearned about this ancestry in my family, I wanted to learn more because it's so absolutely fascinating. I had uh, started following Sephardic cooks and groups where they talked about food and traditions and things like that. And I was listening to someone talk about Passover food preparations and just kind of getting an idea because I already knew what Passover was. I was listening, you know, listening with the ear of, you know, how, what are the Sephardi traditions around this? Mm -hmm. And um, the person mentioned that Sephardi, in contrast to Ashkenazi, can have rice and beans during uh, their Passover meals. He just offhandedly mentioned when you make the beans, you wash them three times. The beans and rice, you wash them three times. And um, I got goose pimples because that's how my grandmother taught me to prepare beans. You always wash them three times. Incredible. So in our family, it lost the connection to the actual holiday to the religious significance but sure how you do it is what remains that tradition of that very specific way of preparing the food had been maintained throughout the generations that's absolutely fascinating i guess that must have been like the eureka moment for you when you <laughs> when you made that connection absolutely because because this process especially for the people who have whose families were forced to convert you know there's very little or no oral tradition left and they, they they're really unaware of the customs 
the whole process of reclaiming the citizenship, whether it's Spanish or Portuguese, it's not just a checklist of paperwork. There's an emotional process that the people go through because they're they're relearning and they're re-identifying and kind of incorporating this back into their their family history and into themselves. And there's something powerful about seeing the paper trail, but there's also something very powerful about seeing that this group of people still hold these customs and I can see those customs mirrored a little bit in my own family. Really significant for many people, me included. Let's just touch on a bit of, just as you mentioned, the Inquisition. Everyone heard about the horrific atrocities yes. that were, were, were committed. But let's just outline it, because Jews had been present on the Iberian Peninsula for sort of 1,700 years and yeah. lived in harmony with Moors and Christians. And, and we, we know that. And they also contributed massively to the society on the Iberian Peninsula around 1500, the late 1400s. 1492. Um, 1492 and the Jews at the time present in Spain were basically Mm -hmm. given kind of three options either to convert to Catholicism they were given a a time frame to leave the peninsula or if they decided to stay and not be and not convert to Catholicism they were basically um, massacred exactly yes they were given I believe it was three months the king and queen of Spain, you know, did the edict of expulsion and they were given three months to leave, but they didn't disseminate the information for like a month or two. So they had say they actually had less time to prepare to, you know, decide what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? How are they going to get there? How do we sell off our valuables? And there were limits of what they could take with them. Really? You know, yeah, of how much gold they could carry out and things like that. So, so not only were they forced to leave, but they were economically crippled as well. You know, there's, there's different diaspora routes, but, you know, many went to Portugal because at that time Portugal was still friendly up into Northern Europe and over into the Ottoman Empire. Empire. And those initial decisions for the descendants of those families had significant impact because if, say, for example, if they had gone, um, I'll use my family's route, they had gone from Spain to Portugal, a few years later, Portugal then had its own edict of expulsion. And then many of those people left from there and then went to the Americas thinking the further I get away, you know, I can distance myself from that, from the oppression of the Inquisition. Um, And of course, the Inquisition did eventually make its way to the Americas and was um, very brutal and oppressive there for hundreds of years. You know, because my family went to Mexico and they were there with the Inquisition hot on their heels. They were pursued effectively wherever they went. Absolutely. Yeah, the families were pursued. And then there was the division between the old Christians, the people who had always been Catholic, and the new Christians, the, the, the people who used to be Jewish, who were forced to convert, and there was a distrust between the two communities. Um, and then so what ended up happening is the new Christians would continue to marry within the same community. So you've got people who used to be Jewish with lingering Jewish uh, traditions, but there was a significant portion of them that just kind of married in themselves. And that's how you get the transmission of those lingering traditions through the generations. And then the other group of people who left Spain the other group of Sephardis who left Spain who went to like the Ottoman Empire, which was very friendly at the time, was very friendly to Jewish traditions. They were not forced to convert, so they were able to maintain 
their traditions. And that's where you'll get people with ancestry through the Ottoman Empire, through Turkey, through Greece, and then they'll end up in the United States in areas like New York and Seattle. There's a, you know, significant populations there. So, so today you've got two groups of people uh, that came from those original Sephardi in the Iberian Peninsula, those who lost, who were forced to convert and those who were able, you know, by luck or, you know, the luck of their diaspora route to maintain their connection to Judaism and their their history and, and their heritage yeah and one thing i found really quite shocking um was that the inquisition wasn't actually officially outlawed in spain until 1834 and yeah. it, it wasn't officially outlawed in portugal until 1821 so wow that's only that, a few that, generations like, ago yeah to talk about your life in Spain. You've immigrated to the city of Zaragoza, which I absolutely adore. In fact, we bumped into each other yes. in Zaragoza um, <laughs> a little under a year ago by coincidence. We found each other and we had a quick chat um, yeah. outside El Jataria Palace, I think it was. It was a yeah. great to meet you in person um, as a listener of the podcast, I think, as how we, we yeah. I think I posted something on social media or on Instagram and you said, oh, you're in Zaragoza, let's try and meet. I had um, some company visiting us from California the time and you were visiting a friend so our schedules didn't match up for us to actually set a time to meet for coffee or anything right Um, but we were standing in line waiting to get in and I heard your voice and because I had been listening to your podcast which I have to say (laughs) when I was living in San Diego dreaming of returning to Spain your podcast gave you know helped me stay focused on my goal and gave me that little taste of Spain and and kind of scratched that travel itch for me (laughs) (laughs) makes me very happy to hear you say that and and now here you are a guest on the the very same podcast it's come full circle but but yes I was in line and I heard your voice and of course I could recognize it immediately so I you know wandered over and said hello and introduced myself serendipitous that was exactly so how long have you been living in Zaragoza now and how do you find uh, life there compared to sunny California uh, we've been here for about a year and a half now it's myself my husband and I have two boys um, uh-huh. they're 10 and 12 years old you know like with any international uh, move it's in the beginning it's a bit stressful and it takes a while to get settled in uh, aside from the normal bumps that come along with relocating we absolutely love it the life style here suits us a little better. So San Diego is a fantastic city. You know, I have no complaints that way, but there are some aspects to living there that just didn't fit well for me. For example, it's nearly impossible to walk anywhere to get um, errands run in San Diego. You have to drive everywhere and the traffic is horrendous and only getting worse. Um, And I don't really like driving. So to be able to live here and everything I need is a five to 10 minute walk, Um, is just so nice because you get out of the house, you know, you see happy people, you see wonderful architecture, you know, a a five, 10 minute walk from my house, there's a a Roman theater and just these wonderful things to look at that you don't get tired of looking at. So it makes the daily chores more enjoyable. 
Whereas in San Diego for me, you know, running errands, driving in traffic was stressful. Here, it's a nice walk. And then I can do my grocery shopping, right? Baragopa is a wonderful city. And also, I always think maybe it's a kind of lesser known city for people who don't live in Spain or for uh, outsiders or tourists. Um, it, maybe it's overlooked, but it's a big city and it's got so much to offer. And also the, the geographic location of it is great because you're basically right in between Madrid and Barcelona. So you kind of got both cities only a couple of hours away absolutely it's um it's a hidden treasure it really is and i'm shocked at the because the cost of living here is extremely reasonable it's um it's less than madrid and barcelona and because it's a big enough city there's it offers all of those options that you would want i don't ever feel like we're lacking for anything and like you said we're close to major cities and the train i mean i know you've talked about it in another podcast but the trains here are just absolutely phenomenal they're so comfortable and so easy to use what I wanted to ask you is, is, have you found that there is any kind of active Jewish or Sephardic community in Zaragoza where you live? Is that something that you've been looking to work on connecting people together with the, the common heritage? Is, is there much connection between Spanish and Sephardic communities, for example, where you are? So here in Zaragoza, when I first got here, you know, I did some Google searching and I found um, the Sephardad Aragon, which is the Sephardic community here in my region. And um, it's led by Timna, Timna Seval, and she is fantastic. The community here is very small. There's only a handful of Jewish people and then another handful of um, non-Jewish people, Spaniards, that are interested in Jewish culture and tradition. So they don't have their own synagogue. They don't even have their own building. When we would meet, it would be in um, in like the conference room or the rented room of a, a local Christian church. And we would meet, try to do once a month, depending on which month it is, you know, one collective event, whether it was um, a Shabbat service on Friday or um, Rosh Hashanah or something, you know, whatever we could get together for. And and everybody is super friendly and very welcoming. Um, and uh, and Timna would lead the, the event um, through the lens of teaching people more, you know, so that was definitely huh. it's very educational. And I mean, she's fantastic at it and um and so it's a very small community here other cities in spain have larger communities like madrid and barcelona um and they've got actual physical buildings and and can offer more services but for a city of saragossa has got roughly 800,000 people so for a city of this size one would hope to have a larger thriving community here and it's just not just not yet. So one of the things that I'm passionate about is supporting the local community. Um, And the way that I do that now is one of the items that is required for the citizenship application for Spain is you have to show either a cultural or an economic connection to Spain. And you can show an economic connection through a donation to a Spanish NGO. And I've got a list of various NGOs around Spain that some of my clients have used um, in the past. And on there, I have Sephirot Aragon, so so people can make the donation to support Timna's education events. So she'll have uh, Hebrew classes and tours of Zaragoza, local Jewish history tours and, and other events. And so I, you know, I try to help people support it, the community locally that way.
You were talking about a tour of locations which have Jewish or Sephardic heritage. Tell us just a little bit of what there is in Zaragoza. There used to be a very large and thriving uh, Jewish community here before, of course, before the Inquisition. So we're talking, you know, 1400s and before. And um, and Zaragoza was divided um, where the one portion of the city was Jewish and the other portion was um, Christian or Catholic. And there was a chain, a literal chain that divided the city. So you knew which neighborhood belonged to which group of people. And today in Zaragoza, you can fall. There's a street that runs along where that uh, chain used to be, and it's called Cadena, La Cadena. So in Spanish, it means chain. So it's the chain street. So um, the street of La Cadena crosses La Reconquista, the street of the Reconquest. Of the Reconquest, wow. Yes. So in the street names, there's a little bit of the Jewish history. Like many old cities, when, you know, developers are going to do refurbishing of buildings, of modern buildings or whatever, you know, they'll dig down and they'll find something, right? So a couple blocks away from my house is one of the grocery stores that I shop at. It's called Eroski. And there's an apartment building right next to it. Just a very normal, typical, nondescript Spanish apartment building. Uh, a few years ago, a while back, when they were doing something in the in the uh, parking garage area, they found the old Jewish mikvah, which and that is the traditional Samar- uh, uh, ceremonial baths. So in the in the parking garage basement of this. A Spanish building, you know, you can, I have yet to many be able to get in there, but I've seen pictures of it. You can go in there and there's a, a Jewish ceremonial bath. <laughs> in a modern day parking lot. Exactly. And then there's various things like that around the city of, of um, the old main temple. What, after the, the Jews were kicked out of Spain, it was the building was taken and used by the Catholic Church. And for many years, it was for friars and monks. I can actually see that building from my from my window. But when you go to the front of it, you know, it's got the historical plaque where it says that this used to be the old Jewish synagogue. So so there's there's many um, sites all around Zaragoza of the, the Jewish history here. You just kind of have to keep your eye out for them and they just pop up. You have to keep your eye out. Yeah, you have to yeah. hunt it down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, all over Spain as well, you know, there are uh, Jewish quarters and uh, synagogues and former synagogues. Um, mm-hmm over Spain in different cities, Barcelona, Girona, Toledo, I've talked exactly. about you know, and a couple of other uh, previous When in Spain episodes, Cordoba, of course, famous, uh, yes. uh, well, and Seville. Um, at the end of the episode, I'll do a little roundup of those places uh, as well for any listeners who are interested in exploring the uh, Jewish history in uh, various cities around Spain. Let's go back then to what you do now, because you basically facilitate and help people go through the immigration process to get uh, with their Jewish or Sephardic uh, ancestry. Walk us through the nuts and bolts. If someone were to come to you, what they would need to do? So this would be relatively similar depending on if the people coming to me were either um, still Jewish or if they had the the um, Converso crypto-Jewish ancestry. First, I have the client um, compile any information that they have, that they've compiled on their own. Um, and, and this varies significantly because I've had people come to me saying, I got a DNA test and it shows I'm Jewish, but 
our family doesn't have any Jewish history, what does this mean? Sometimes it does mean Sephardic ancestry and sometimes it doesn't. So I help a person kind of uh, explore explore that. Um, so from having information to then people who, whether they, they are amateur genealogists in their own right and they've done their own research and they have the documents or you know their family's still Jewish and they have um, familial, uh, oral tradition, cultural tradition, and family documents. I have a, I have the everybody cl um, compile what they have on their own, and then we use that. And depending on where their family is from, what region of the world, I've got a network of, God, roughly 30 going on 40 genealogists that specialize in um, Sephardic ancestry and Sephardic history that I can match up the client with the genealogist that's best suited from where their family is from. And we can explore, um, we can explore their the actual documentation. Um, so they can either get a full genealogy report, which would have all of the documents linking them to a direct Sephardic ancestor through a paper trail. Genealogy obviously plays a very key part in, in the process. Yes, because we have to ultimately we have to establish um, the person's Sephardic ancestry. And and sometimes the paper trail doesn't exist because you have to think of situations where the Nazis had come through Europe and just destroyed synagogues and all the records along with it. So in those situations where the actual paper trail doesn't exist, but there's enough uh, secondary or tertiary evidence and the surnames that we discussed earlier, you can have a surname report done, which is also another type of academic report, but it, it, it's, it's slightly different than the genealogy one. But both, both are, um, uh, both the, uh, Spain will accept both types of reports and then we can use what the client supplies on their own, whichever report the genealogist can produce, and then we use that to obtain a certificate of Sephardic ancestry. And that's kind of the, the linchpin in the whole process because uh, in the law itself, this document is required. And there's the, um, the FCJE, which is the um, Jewish Federation in Spain. They are uh, authorized with issuing these and they that um, organization has also authorized a handful, or more than a handful, various uh, Jewish organizations around the world to issue the certificates. So we go through one of those to obtain the certificate. And then the rest of the application process is what anyone else really who would be applying for citizenship would be required to do. Birth certificate, marriage certificate, um, background checks, and um, and then the last thing is uh, organizing the person's cultural or economic connections to Spain. And and that one seems to make people the most nervous, but it's actually the easiest because there's a wide variety of ways to be able to demonstrate cultural or economic connections. You know, if you took uh, Spanish classes in college or in high school, your transcripts work. Um, you know, do you? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because that's a, you know, if you've taken Spanish history classes, if you've traveled to Spain, if you've got proof of your travel to Spain, you know, passport stamps, pictures, plane tickets. Um, uh, I was a member in San Diego. There were these international cottages at the main, at our Balboa Park, which is kind of like Central Park for San Diego. They had these international colleges, which, or international cottages, which were um, cultural centers. And the mm -hmm. House of Spain 
you know, was a proponent of Spanish culture and history. And I was a member there. So my membership to this cultural club was another way to demonstrate cultural connection. So there's, there's, I had, I had one client who, who had written a book, a history book, um, and a genealogy of El Cid. There's so many different ways that you can fit those requirements. I was going to ask you that, I guess, because each individual's story is slightly different and there are lots of nuances as well, I guess. And then that's where I come in because I help people efficiently organize and work their way through the application process um, because I know what to look for. And then also, I'm not an attorney, but I do partner with one. So if something comes up where we have questions, you know, I can we have the attorney that we can ask for, you know, legal guidance in in the process. So, so between my my experience and in, in being able to organize things and help things move along efficiently, and then having the support from the attorney, you know, we've kind of got all of the all of the bases covered, and you know, help people move through the process. For example, it took me about a year and a half on my own to complete my application. But now with, you know, how I've streamlined everything, most of my clients get their application done in less than five months. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you how long does the process take? So that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, pretty quick, pretty speedy process. And I I guess supposing, uh, for example, if you're an American citizen and you get the Spanish nationality, that would be a dual nationality, right? Yes. That would then depend which country your existing nationality is, is held. Maybe not all countries would offer dual nationality. Or does it automatically guarantee you dual nationality from whichever country you're from? If you receive um, citizenship from Spain through Sephardic ancestry, they allow you to maintain your current current citizenships and allow you to have any future citizenships Um, but then like you're saying it depends on which country you're currently a citizen of because your current country may have its own rules and that may affect that that's what I was thinking, because, um, for example, from my from my point of view, I'm, uh, I'll be marrying a Spanish citizen mm-hmm. next year. I have to go before a Spanish judge and uh, officially renounce my British nationality in order to gain uh, Spanish citizenship. But there's a kind of a strange little loophole because actually doing that is not recognized under British law. So in the eyes of the Spanish law, I would have to renounce my uh, British citizenship. But in under British law, renouncing your citizenship is impossible. You have it for life whatever mm-hmm. happens but yeah. uh, but it's not but it's not an official dual citizenship well i was reading that, that was there some kind of small change to the law last year made by the spanish government there's kind of two separate pathways so if anybody knows about the spanish citizenship they've probably heard about the law that i applied under in 2015 um, it was a temporary law. It expired October of 2019. Um, but prior to that, there were other laws that had already been in existence that laid a pathway for people of Sephardic ancestry to apply, and they're called Carta de Naturaleza. And those laws were unpopular for a couple of reasons. They required the applicant to renounce their citizenship. So they would just, you know, kind of situation like that you were explaining for yourself, they were not allowed to maintain or gain any other citizenships. And they were also required a two-year residency in Spain before they could apply. That's quite onerous to, to many people. So it wasn't very popular. So the 2015 law, one of its goals was to make the process more welcoming to more applicants. 
Mm-hmm. And in the 2015 law, there's a, there's a paragraph in there that specifically states that it's making changes to the previous Carta de Naturaleza laws. And the changes that it makes is it now allows people to maintain and gain multiple citizenships and the residency requirements is no longer required. So it grandfathered in those changes, even though the 2015 law itself now is expired. So people, and this is what's not well known, is that those Carta de Naturaleza laws that were around prior to the 2015 law, they're still in effect. They don't expire. People who missed the opportunity to apply through 2015 up until October of 2019, they can still apply. That's that's not very well known. Nicole, tell us a bit about like the services you offer and how can people make that first contact with you and what would the process be and, and how would you initiate yeah. the process? Well, where people can find me, I have a website and it's um, welcomehomesafardi.com and Safardi is spelled, this is a Spanish spelling, it's S-E-F-A-R-D-I. Okay, um, I will put a link to your website in the show notes of the podcast. What I do initially with people is I have an intake form. Um, it takes about 15, maybe 20 minutes for people to fill it out. So I can, because like we discussed earlier, each person's um, uh, ancestry is so different and so individual that I have to, you know, I have to go through a series of questions to see, to learn about, you know, what information they have, what's their family history, so I can personalize their application process and know how best to guide them. So I start off with the intake form and a, and a personal consultation that's about an hour long. And then if they decide to use my services, I offer two different types of services. One where I'm you know, basically the personal assistant and I facilitate everything I possibly can for them, except for those things that I cannot physically do myself, for example. Mm-hmm. I cannot physically go to a fingerprint location and do the person's fingerprints for their background check, right? But I can, <laughs> I can, I can, um, I can do all the communication. I can do, you know, the timeline management and and make sure they're they're staying on track and and deal with any issues and bureaucracy that may come up. Um, that's kind of the personal assistant package. And then the other option, other package that I offer is for someone who's who's um, a little bit more comfortable with uh, kind of project management, basically, where they're fine doing communication and follow up and possibly Mm -hmm. kind of nagging someone if they need information or whatever. Like sometimes dealing with a genealogist can be a little tricky where they're slow to respond. So if someone's, you know, comfortable with follow up and that type of stuff, but they just don't know what the steps are and want to be told, I have everything in, you know, instructional forms and documents and things like that, that I send them a package where they can, it's like a self-guided package, but then I'm always available for questions and clarification. And so that's the other package that I offer for someone who wants to be more hands-on. You know, depending on how they decide to utilize my services, it's a five-month contract, and then I help them get from start to submitting their application with the attorney. Great stuff. Thank you so much for your really uh, valuable insights and information, Nicole. Thank you. I've, I've had such a wonderful time, and thank you for having me on here.
So there you have it. That was Nicole Martinez-Cruz. A huge thank you to you, Nicole. Really interesting story, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us. If anyone is in the position where they're interested in uh, pursuing Spanish citizenship through the Sephardic ancestry route, then do head over to Nicole's website, which she mentioned was welcomehomesephardi.com. It's welcome home, and Sephardi is the Spanish spelling, which is S-E-F-A-R-D-I. Okay, then just to round up this episode, I said at the beginning that I would run through a few places of interest that are connected with Jewish history, places which still have uh, the remains of Jewish synagogues, temples, this kind of thing. And I'm just going to give a, a, a little run through for you guys, if anyone's interested in this and coming to Spain, of the key sites of interest. So let's start off with Barcelona. Uh, The former Jewish quarter in Barcelona is known as El Cal, from the Hebrew word for Kahal, meaning community. And it's still possible in that neighbourhood, and I've seen them myself actually, it's still possible to find the little Hebrew letters and inscriptions of many of the buildings in that neighbourhood. The main synagogue in El Cal is said to be one of Europe's oldest and uh, is actually open to visitors. Uh, Staying with Barcelona, Monjuic, which translates as uh, Jewish mountain, overlooking the city of Barcelona. Fantastic views from the top. You can also see the Shoah Memorial and the Museum of National Art of Catalonia. And the collection inside there includes a number of uh, Gothic and religious paintings depicting the conversions from Judaism to Christianity. Just up the road from Barcelona in Catalonia, Girona. The Jewish community in Girona dates back as far as 890. It was a very important Jewish centre during the Middle Ages and it still has the best preserved and most important Jewish quarter in all of Spain. Uh, The site was actually discovered accidentally by a property developer and legend has it that some of the families in 1492 actually bricked up and closed off their properties believing that they would one day return and their Catholic neighbours were reluctant to reopen these properties, fearing that they might be considered Jews. And so the area was basically entombed until the late 1970s. Now let's head down to near Madrid in Toledo. Um, This is a UNESCO listed city and is known in fact as the city of three cultures referring to the historical coexistence of Jewish, Muslim and Christian cultures. Check back in the back catalogue if you haven't listened to it. I actually made an episode all about Toledo um, earlier this year, I think in about March this year, March 2020, all about Toledo, what to see, what to do, the history of Toledo and in that episode I visited one of the uh, synagogues in the Jewish quarter of Toledo which is absolutely spectacular. As most of us know Toledo was a former capital of Spain just before the expulsion of Jews the city was the leading center of Jewry in Spain. Uh, Following the decree uh, eight of the city's ten synagogues and five of its Talmudic schools were sadly destroyed Um, but you can still visit two synagogues that survived and they were converted into Catholic uh, churches. 
The first uh, synagogue uh, is El Transito, which was built in 1357 as a private family synagogue. And the second one, the one that I visited, uh, which is just a little bit out of the center of the town, but I guess it's in the Jewish quarter in the Juderia, uh, is called Santa Maria la Blanca. And that was built by Islamic architects in the 12th century for Jewish use. And uh, therefore of course is considered a symbol of the peaceful coexistence of the two religions during the middle ages and i've been in there um absolutely beautiful i'll see if i can find some photos that i took and put them in the show notes on the when in spain website for this episode beautiful rows of white ivory arches inside uh, really really quite special um let's move down to cordoba then to get a snapshot of jewish cordoba must also mention that I recorded an episode all about Cordoba and the Patios uh, Festival, the Fiesta de los Patios, with Karen Rosenblum. And I know she will be listening to this and be super interested in this. We talked a lot about Jewish influence and Jewish history in Cordoba in that episode. Again, it was recorded this year. Lovely episode with lots of sounds and atmosphere and fountains and patios and us describing uh, a route around Cordoba and uh, so if you want to transport yourself obviously this year the, f- the festival didn't happen which is why we recorded the episode um, go check back to I think Mar- when, when is it May April May um, and have a listen to that but just to say um, in Cordoba you really should see the synagogue uh, which was built in 1314 um, which is a beautiful Mudeja building almost perfectly preserved it's the only synagogue in spain uh, from that time which in fact has not been turned into a christian palace of worship uh, the jewish quarter includes the almodova gate the gate of the jews as it's known locally and the monument to the great Jewish doctor and philosopher Maimonides. You can also stop off at the Casa Sefarad, uh, a cultural project uh, which is all about Judeo-Spanish culture, history and traditions, and even includes uh, some Sephardic food surprises. Yeah, who knew that Cocido stew is actually of Jewish origin? We should also mention while we're in Andalusia, Seville, Sevilla, Although Seville is best known for its Moorish and Christian roots, you can still find uh, the Jewish influence there. And it was uh, the largest Jewish community in Spain, in fact, after Toledo. The former Jewish quarter encompasses the barrios of Santa Cruz, Santa Maria la Blanca and San Bartolomé. And you'll probably want to start with uh, Santa Cruz Square, Plaza Santa Cruz in the Barrio de Santa Cruz, which was the location of the old synagogue uh, that then became a Christian church uh, in 1391. It was sadly destroyed in 1811, but near there you can still visit the synagogue church of Santa Maria la Blanca, which was built in 1252. A few other places around Spain that you may not I've heard of. Uh, Lucena, which is uh, near to Cordoba. It's uh, an easy day trip from there. Uh, Lucena was actually founded by Jews uh, during the Moorish rule and it's said that Lucena had an entirely Jewish population. If we head down to Jaén province, to Ubeda, uh, Ubeda actually has uh, what is thought to be one of the oldest synagogues in Spain, uh, which can still be visited today. It's called the Sinagoga del Agua. 
And finally, heading back closer to Madrid again, uh, Segovia. Segovia also has a juderia or Jewish quarter. And today the Iglesia del Corpus Christi uh, is what used to be the old main synagogue. And you can also find uh, a Jewish cemetery in Segovia as well. So that will do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I've got some great stuff lined up as we head towards Christmas. Uh, some really interesting personal stories with people's relationship to Spain and moving to Spain. All again with useful and practical advice. Stay tuned for that. We've got some more armchair travel coming up soon as well. We're going to be talking Seville or Sevilla with some fantastic insights from a Sevillana, someone who's from there. But we're not going to be looking at the usual stuff. Well, we might do a little bit, but we're going to be looking at alternative Seville and we're going to be looking at sustainable tourism in Spain. I've also secured an interview with a property buying expert so we're going to be talking all about buying property in Spain. So do head across to the Facebook group if you have a question about buying property in Spain you're thinking about doing it in the future do head across to the When in Spain Facebook group and drop a question in there if you would like me to ask that question to my guest who is a property expert in Spain. You could also drop a question that you'd like me to ask in on Instagram or indeed you could email it to me as well at wheninspain1 at outlook.com. So that's coming up as well plus lots of other things in the pipeline. Plenty of great episodes to get us up to Christmas and beyond I think and then plenty more uh, in the new year. So until that next episode, I will say muchísimas gracias and hasta luego.